Shalom and welcome to this week's class and I'm going to start as I try to always by putting in the comments a link to the written lecture so whoever wants to print it up and can follow along and there it is okay so so today's uh, lecture is called An Organic Blend, Learning How to Treat Ourselves. As you know, we always start with a modern-day issue, for in the world of Chabad, the uh, entire purpose of the deepest mystical teachings is precisely to be able to change our practical modern-day lives, how we live our lives in relationship to God, in relationship to others, in relationship to our family, in relationship to ourselves, as we're going to talk about today. So today's modern day issue is about how one is to treat him or herself. Our sages tell us that God had the same question concerning how to treat us, how to treat all of creation. And uh, our sages give an interesting metaphor, and I'll read it to you. A king had fine crystal drinking glasses and said, If I will clean them in hot water, they will crack. And if I will clean them in cold water, they will remain dirty. So too, God said concerning the world, if I will use the attribute of strictness, hot water, the world will not survive. And if I will use the attribute of kindness, the world will devolve into sin. So too, concerning how we should treat ourselves. If we are to be gentle with ourselves, we will devolve into slothness and other and overindulgence. While if we were to be strict with ourselves, we would devolve into self-resentment, bitterness, and cruelty. I'm sorry, let me just shut my phone. And cruelty. Discipline is important and necessary. However, so is emotional self-care. So where do we find the balance? Now, finding a balance between the two is the obvious answer. However, what I'm here to point out is that it isn't just a matter of quantitative balance, how often I'm strict, how often I'm gentle. No. Rather, what we need here is to have a balance of qualitative strictness and gentleness towards self all the time. And as the joke goes, he stuck his head in boiling water, his feet in freezing water, and wondered why he wasn't feeling lukewarm all over. That doesn't work. If we're just going to have a, a quantitative balance, sometimes being all strict, sometimes being all gentle, it's not going to work. We're not going to have a lukewarm, comfortable life. However, if we find a qualitative balance all the time between our strictness and gentleness, we'll be living a productive and comfortable life. And that's what we're going to talk about here. What we're going to learn here is that the appropriate way to treat ourselves all the time is with a qualitative balance between gentleness and strictness. However, what exactly is and how exactly do we create a balance of qualitative strictness and gentleness? This lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical teaching of the Rebbe Blessed Memory, delivered on this Shabbos in 1965, exploring the mystical meaning behind Abraham and Isaac being identical in appearance. Yes, correct. Abraham and Isaac were identical in their appearance. Literally, their facial experience, their physical appearance. So let's jump right into the introductions and we'll see what it's all about that they were identical. So the opening verse of this week's Torah portion tells us, and I quote, And these are the generations of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. That's exactly what the word says, the verse says. So Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, known as Rashi, he asks and explains the obvious question of the duplicity in this verse. Isaac, son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac. Let's, let me quote you exactly what Rashi says. Since scriptures wrote Isaac, the son of Abraham, it had to say Abraham begot Isaac. Why? Rashi explains. Because the scorners of the generation were saying that Sarah had conceived from Avimelech. 
for she had lived with Abraham for many years and had not conceived from him. So I want to just explain here that you remember last week's Torah portion when Abraham moved into Abimelech's territory, Abimelech took away Sarah from um, Abraham. And they were saying, the scorners were saying, that there was a physical relationship between Sarah and Abraham and uh, Abimelech from which Sarah got pregnant. Now you understand why they were saying that it was from Abimelech. Let's go back to Rashi. What did the Holy One, blessed be he, do? He shaped the features of Isaac's face to resemble Abraham's. And everyone attested that Abraham had begotten Isaac. This is the meaning of what is written here. Isaac, the son of Abraham, because here is the proof that Abraham begot Isaac. That was a direct quote from Rashi. Now, what I want to share with you is the Kabbalistic and Hasidic mystical insight to what the scorners were saying and what, and what God's response was to the scorners, what he did on a mystical level. So to understand this, we need to talk about what mystically Abraham represents, and obviously it manifested itself physically, as we'll soon see, and what Isaac mystically represents. So the verse says concerning Abraham, it's a verse in Isaiah, it says, Avraham Ohavi, Abraham who loved me, because Abraham's relationship with God and the way he served God was with love. As a matter of fact, that is how he brought people into monotheism through love, acts of love. Now concerning Isaac, when Jacob talks about the God of his father, the verse in Genesis says, the God of my father, and then goes on to say, and the fear of Isaac, upachad Yitzchak. And from here we mystically learn out that Jacob's service to, I'm sorry, Isaac's service to God was one of awe and fear. And so too was the way he brought people into the fold was through awe. The awe of God is how he brought people into the fold. So now let's understand what the scorners are saying. They're saying that spiritually, their service of God, Isaac is not identical to Abraham. Isaac is not the continuity of Abraham. Abraham was all about love. Isaac is all about fear, awe. Abraham was all about kindness. Isaac was all about strictness. Thus they said that Isaac is not the son of Abraham. He must come from Abimelech, which is a total different brand. Thus what does God do? God makes them identical. What does that mean mystically? So let's read the word mystically. What he's saying here is that Isaac's relationship of awe and fear with God was a direct offspring of Abraham's love. And that it is Abraham's love which gave birth to Isaac's awe and fear. Thus, the verse says, Isaac is the son of Abraham, and it is Abraham who begot Isaac in which both Abraham and Isaac create a qualitative balance between love and awe, which is what Abraham's love and Isaac's fear is all about. So it isn't two separate things, but rather they work hand in hand to the point where they are mutually inclusive, as we're going to see. Abraham's love is mutually inclusive with Isaac's strictness, and so too Isaac's strictness is mutually inclusive with Abraham's kindness. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But before that, let's take it up to the next mystical level. On a mystical level, kindness is all about the arousal, revelation from above to below. We'll talk about it in a moment. While strictness is all about the arousal, the revelation, and the relationship of God coming from below, within us, to above. What this means practically is that often, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, driving on the interstate, all of a sudden you have a strong identity. All of a sudden you have a strong yearning, a strong feeling of your Jewishness. Where did that come from? We're taught that that is the definition of the word mazal. Mazal means a drip. That's what it really in Hebrew, normally we talk about mazal to be luck. But in Kabbalah, the word mazal also comes from the word nozel. Modern day Hebrew, we use the word nozel to say there's a leak. It's a drip from above. From above it comes and arouses us, unearned. 
While on the other hand, there's some times where a person just says, you know, I am so disconnected, I'm so disassociated from my people, from my spirituality, from my religion, from my Torah, from Israel, from God. And thus, he says, listen, I've got to obediently, I don't feel anything yet, but obediently, I've got to make a change in my life. I have to start praying. I have to start studying Torah. I have to start doing mitzvot. I have to start identifying. This means it comes from below to above. It starts from within. Now, we understand Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is all about bringing revelation from above, showering upon. While Isaac is demanding, dig deep within ourselves. Isaac, if you look in the Torah, what it primarily talks about is that he was a well digger. Well digger means that we're not going to wait for the rain to come from above, arousal from above. We're going to dig within ourselves and bring forth from below the spirituality of our soul to connect with God. On a mystical level, let's take it back to the verse. Thus, we need to know According to the teachings of Kabbalah, it's never just one or the other, arousal from above or arousal from below. Rather, it talks about Vayashtim Lavan Baboke, and it explains that verse to me mystically. The great whiteness, the great light from above wakes up in the morning and shines upon us. And thus, the natural state of a soul, of a person, when he wakes up, is he wants to do the right thing. Then we use that power to dig within ourselves from below. Let's start doing what's right. Let's take the commitment. Let's go ahead and take it to the next level. And then what happens is once we have the arousal from below, this in turn elicits an even greater arousal from above, which gives the power to have offsprings to our arousal from below. What that means is you can have arousal coming from above, coming from below. If we don't make it offspring, if we don't make it happen, if we don't turn it into a commitment, into an action, what am I going to do because I'm feeling close to God? Those are the offspring, the actions, the commitment. Thus we have Yitzchak ben Avraham. First we have to know that arousal from below is empowered by an arousal from above. Then we need to know that Avraham begot Isaac, which means the power to begot, the power to have offsprings, to make our feelings real, concrete, action, comes from the greater power of above, which is elicited by, solicited and elicited by our service from below. Thus you have another interpretation mystically to the verse. The marriage and the flow of the consummation between the from above and the from below and how that works. So too we spoke about the kindness and the strictness. And we're going to talk more about that right now. So we spoke about Abraham is kindness, the service of love. Isaac is strictness, the service of fear of God and awe of God. Now let's look at the verse. We have four times, twice Isaac and twice Abraham. Let's talk about the exact order. Isaac, the son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac. What that would mean mystically is fear, love, love, fear. Thus we have in the teachings, which we're going to talk about today and make it practical. Thus we have what we call the small fear, the small love, the great love, the great fear. Others, it's called lower fear, lower love, higher love, higher fear. Isaac, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac. Okay? Now, we're going to explain this in a moment in the lecture. I want to just show you how full circle this concept comes in the Torah. Some of you are familiar. If you're not, I'll share it with you right now. In the book of Numbers, we talk about a family feud between Korach and his cousin Moses. Moses' father and Korach's father were brothers, and Korach rose up in a war against Moses. And what ended up happening is that Korach actually got swallowed by the earth and swallowed into purgatory. Now, I want to just share with you quickly, here's not the time to talk about the practicality of that story. I just want to talk to you about what it means mystically. The fight that Korach had with Moses was, he said, why did you make your brother the high priest? 
I should be doing the service that the high priest does. Mystically speaking, let's talk about what this means. All of Moses' family, they come from the tribe of Levi. Aaron was the first one who broke away, so to speak, from the tribe of Levi. And within the tribe of Levi, he became a Kohen. And only Aaron and his descendants were Kohen. Now, according to Kabbalah, the job of the Levi is music. Music is all about the elevation from below to above. The primary job of the Kohen is to bring down the fire and to give the blessings, to bring down from above to below the blessings. Thus, in a sense, Korach was saying that the true ultimate work needs to be that of strictness. The high priest, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Holy of Holies, it has to be done by a Levi. It needs to be done by strictness from below to above. Not by Aaron, which is a Kohen, which is from above to below. Thus, this was the fight that he was fighting on a mystical level. He wanted to separate completely the Levi from the Kohen, remove the Kohen from the ultimate service, and have Levi do the service. However, the way God told Moses to set it up was that the Kohen will do the primary service and the Levi will be of service to the Kohen. The primary work in the Holy Temple was by the Kohen and the supportive work to the Holy Temple was by the Levites. Because Korach tried to separate the two, he weakened both the, he was going to weaken both the Kohen and the Levi because they need each other and in the order that the Kohen is primary and the Levi is supportive. By trying to separate that and undo that, he caused a weakness in the Kohen from above to below, from above to below and in the Levi from the below to above. Which, by the way, mystically speaking, is why two things happen in the, in the cause and effect, the retribution. He was A, swallowed from above to below into purgatory fire, which is from below to above. We'll talk about what, what this has to do with our class later on, but you can also already see the relationship with the Levites being the embodiment of Isaac, the Kohen being the embodiment of Abraham, and the balance that's needed in between the two. We'll talk about that momentarily. Let's go ahead and go on further with this class. So we had all the introductions, and now let us jump right into the lecture. So as you know, I always start the lecture with giving you a clear list of which Kabbalistic concepts we're going to talk about before we wrap it up, come back to the modern day issue and make it all the mystical should become practical. So here's the list. Number one, we're going to talk about the lower fear and the higher fear. Number two, we're going to talk about the lower love and the higher love. Number three, we're going to talk about the pro and the con of fear. And then lastly, we're going to talk about when Mashiach comes and not before. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay. Now, according to the order of the services, as I mentioned to you, Isaac, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, lower fear, lower love, higher love, higher fear. I should be talking the order of lower fear and lower love. I'm not going to do that because it will be much easier to understand and follow along if we first talk about the higher lower fear and then the higher and lower love. So let's talk about the higher and lower love. What, I'm sorry, lower fear. What is the higher and lower fear? Let's start with the lower fear. Lower fear is translated as fear of retribution. Now this lower fear subdivides into two categories. There is the simple lower fear, which we talk about a physical retribution. We talk about the fear of God punishing us, our health, our family, God forbid, our children, God forbid, financially, God forbid, we're going to get physically punished. So what we're talking about here is not the focus on who God is, but on the focus of what's going to happen to the person if the person sins. Now, I, I just want to share the higher dimension of the fear of retribution is not being afraid of what God's going to do to us, but so to speak, what would happen to God if we sin? How does that make sense? Let me just share it, just metaphorically speaking. There's one type of person who says, I'm not going to cheat on my spouse because 
what would happen to me when I get caught. There's another more mature fear of retribution, which says that I'm going to remain loyal to my wife or my spouse, whichever one it is, not because of what will happen to me. I can't imagine what would happen to her, i.e. how crushed she would be if I got caught. See the difference? They're both about retribution, only that the difference is, am I afraid of what's happening to me if I get caught sinning? Or am I afraid of what's happening to God if I sin? What does that mean? On a mystical level, what does that mean? What that means is, I'm going to share with you the two dimensions through a story. The previous Rebbe was once asked by a chazan, a cantor, who he used to pray on high holidays, and he asked the previous Rebbe, why did you choose the other cantor to lead the high holiday services by you over me? And the previous Rebbe answered, the reason is because the other chazan, he cries when he davens on the high holidays. And this chazan said to the previous Rebbe, but I also cry when I pray on the high holidays. And the previous Rebbe said, true. But you cry by the portion of the prayer which says, who will live and who will die. He cries by the portion of the prayer that says, Elokeinu v'elokeinu our God and God of our fathers, Maloich al kola oilam kuloi. Let your sovereignty reign over all of the universe with your full glory. That's the difference of where you cry. Thus I'm going to talk about the two levels of fear of retribution, which is about am I afraid what God's going to do to me, or am I afraid what I'm doing to God by sinning? Our sages say, and I quote to you, it says concerning the sinner, he repulses the feet of the Shekhinah. Shekhinah is God's presence, revelation in our world. So therefore, the sages say that when we sin, we push away, we repulse the feet of the Shekhinah. Feet of the Shekhinah Kabbalistically means that we're talking about the way the lowest level of revelation, which is in our world. We, so to speak, chase the revelation of God in our world into concealment, into contraction, into being hidden, to the point where we don't see with our naked eye, with our eye of our mind, that there is a balabayat libidazu. God controls this world. When we sin, we push that away. Thus, there's those who have the lower fear of retribution, which is who will live and who will die, all about me. And there are those that have the higher fear of retribution. What will happen to God's presence in our world if we repulse him? Being said, both of these are both the lower fear. Because both of these are not about God, it's about God's relationship with the universe. So what is higher fear? Higher fear is when we don't focus on our relationship with God, we focus on God. What does that mean? What that means is that we begin to realize that the entire universe, its relationship and its sustenance and the light of God that is vivifying us, bringing us ex nihilo, bringing us into existence and giving us life, must be a finite ray of God's light. Why? Because the fact that we each have our own form, shape, I mean that on all levels, psychologically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all creatures, angels, angel Michael is not like angel Gabriel, angel Gabriel is not like angel Raphael, they're all different. The fact that they all have a different form and shape tells me that they come from the finite linear light of God and not from the infinite, formless, undefinable light of God. Because were they to be from the infinite, there would be no finite form and shape. Thus I start thinking of how distant we are from God, in the sense of that what we connect to God is a finite speck of spirituality, in the face of the infinite spirituality and divinity of God. Let's make this practical. We're talking about the feeling that one has when one's standing on a cliff at the Grand Canyon. We're talking about the feeling one has when one stands on the peaks of the Himalaya mountains. 
we're not talking about a feeling of closeness, but rather a feeling of such awe to the infinite greatness of God, which comes along with the inner feeling of, I don't want to use the word shame in a negative way, but shame and shyness in a beautiful way of humility. That is the higher fear, because that isn't built on me thinking about me. It's rather focusing about God, not focusing about God as God is my God who gives me and punishes me in that finite ray, but of the infinite level of God. Now, these two levels of fear, I want to just share with you, all of it is experienced in the journey of prayer. Prayer is a ladder which has rungs. It's from Jacob's dream, the rungs that go from being upon earth reaching up to heaven. The lower fear, the lower fear is the verses of praise. The lower fear is the abnegation of the narcissistic, egocentric, self-centered life. And we do that by verses of praise of how the entire world, all creations, the ministering angels of all creations, sing and are humble before God. The higher fear, which is the highest rung, remember it's, Lower fear, lower love, higher love, higher fear. The higher fear, which is the highest rung of prayer, that we're talking about the Amida. We're talking about the silent prayer in which we stand in silence and bow our head. That silence of prayer, that bowing, is about the feeling, the spiritual feeling equivalent of the feeling of standing at the Grand Canyon or the Himalayas or anything which is a clear fingerprint of God's infinite kindness. That is the experience that the Rabbeim, the Holy Ones have when they stand Amidah in absolute silence of total transparency to God. Now let's talk about the two loves. Lower love, higher love. So lower love, like lower fear, is focused on me. Yes, it's about my relationship with God, but what does God mean to me? And the lower part of the lower love is, again, the physical. It starts off with the moda'ani. Thank you, God, for sending back my soul and giving me another day of life. The lower love is focused on realizing what King Solomon said, Birchat Hashem Asher. It's the blessing of God that makes us wealthy, that gives us everything we have. We start focusing on the fact that everything we do is but a vessel to receive God's blessing. All too often we go through or we meet other people that go through having great vessels, brilliant business people, taking calculated risks, but the blessing of God isn't there. Then we find people that don't work that much, but for some reason the blessing of God, so to speak, the Midas touch, is just in their life prevalent. Thus, when we start realizing that everything we have from our very life to our family, to our relationships, to our business, to our health, all of it is all the blessing of God, this acknowledgement creates a gratitude, and gratitude is a perfect breeding ground for love. Then there's the spirituality of it all, which goes to another verse in which the verse, the verse says that Kirivasalakim. I'm sorry, it's, it's from another verse. It's in the altar of his teachings. It says, Loving God because God's clo being close to God is good for me. I enjoy it. I find peace. I find serenity. I find spirituality. I find fulfillment. I find saturation in all that I do. Thus, there is that level of the love, which is the higher dimension of the lower love it's all about me what i feel in the relationship but it's not about the physical god give me power give me fame give me beauty give me wealth rather it's the spirituality but it's still about the me in the relationship what does god mean to me that is the lower love we talk about that as the rung in prayer which is called the blessings of the shema in the blessing of Shema, we talk about the, the way the, uh, the spiritual spheres, the angels and the souls, how they relate with God. Then we talk about the higher love. Talking about the higher love, 
can be explained in two stories. That's all I'm going to share with you is two stories through which we'll understand what the higher love is. One story is, once again, with Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, the uh, previous Rebbe, our Rebbe's father-in-law. And he writes how, as a young man, he writes in his diary, as a young, I think he was even a child at the time, he was sitting in a fabrengen of elder Hasidim. And they were sitting in the room which was adjacent, attached to the prayer hall. In the prayer hall, we're talking about in the city of Lubavitch in Russia, in the Belarus, right, Russia, next to Smolensk. And over there, they were sitting in the previous Rebbe's father, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, of Shalom Dober of Lubavitch, was praying in deep meditation. The Chassidim all of a sudden became quiet. Just in a, just a moment of silence in the Fabrengen. And all of a sudden they heard in the sweetest tune, choked up with tears, Rabbi Shalom Dober of Lubavitch was reciting the verse, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, God is our God, God is one. What is, and, and, he, and he continues in his entry, that all of a sudden all the Chassidim heard that and they started crying. What was this crying about? The verse, hear, O God, God is, hear, O Israel, God is our God, God is one, is a declaration. What, what was the crying about? And the definition of this crying was the deepest yearning and higher love of the soul. It's explained in Hasidus that this is the way the spark, the godly soul, is so close to the mother flame, God, that all the spark wants to do is get lost in the bosom of the mother flame. That absolute yearning and love, desiring nothing more than a oneness with God, that is the higher love. There's another story which is told in Hasidus, which is of Rav Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Hasidus, that one Sukkot, he was found in his Sukkah in a deep meditation saying like this. He said in Yiddish, Ich will I don't want your Garden of Eden. And he went on to list other great spiritual revelations that God gives to the righteous. And he kept on saying, I don't want this, I don't want that, I don't want that. And then he said, all I want is you alone. I want you, God, not the revelations. I just want you. This is the higher love. This is what our sages say, concerned that the explanation of Hasidus says that this story has to do with a verse of Asaf. Asaf, one of the choir masters of the Levites, he's one of the authors of the chapters and Psalms. He says as follows. For whom do I have in heaven, and I desired no one with you on earth? The Altarebbe was experiencing such a magnitude of love, of higher love, that it was nothing about his feelings. It was all about, I want to serve you, God, here in this physical world, for thus is the will of God. I want you alone, not any spiritual bliss that I receive from it. And thus, this is, this is the story of the Shema. That's the rung of the Shema. Just thus, we have all four rungs we mentioned. The first rung, the verses of praise, the lower fear, hacking away at the narcissistic, self-centered eye. The second one is the lower love, which is the blessings of the Shema, having more spiritual understanding of the greatness and love and closeness to God. Then we have the Shema itself, which is the higher love of yearning for nothing more than to be one with God himself. And then there is the higher fear, which is the silence and the bowed head of the silent prayer called Amida. Now I want to talk about the pros and cons of fear. According to what everything we've said, and you follow the order of the service, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, fear, love, love, fear. The highest rung is fear. Thus, we're talking over here that fear, the, re the relationship and the service of awe to God, is greater than the service of love to God. Thus, in our high holiday prayers, we say, Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king. Our father is love. The relationship between a son and father is built on love. Our king, 
the foundation of the relation between a subject, a servant, and his king is of fear. And seemingly we would think Avinu is higher than Malkenu. The love relationship is higher than the fear relationship. And yet here we're talking about the aspect in which the fear is higher than the love. Why? Here is the rule in Kabbalah about love. The core center of love, regardless of how transparent and how selfless it is, is the words, Yesh mi she'ohev. There is the one who loves. At the core center of love is I. It could be a humble I, a transparent I, but it'll always begin with I want, I love. There's the feeling of self. He or she who cannot feel self cannot feel love. Fear, by its very nature, is the exact opposite. Fear is the negation of self. Especially when we're talking about the higher fear. Yes, you could say in English, I am scared. But the feeling of I am scared and the feeling of I love is two different feelings concerning the I. Thus, in the self, in the sense of absolute transparency, absolute humility, absolute self-negation in the relationship where it's all about God is stronger in fear than it is in love. That is the pro to fear over love. Less of me, more of God. Now, the Rebbe, unbelievably, he teaches that even the lower fear is connected to this higher level because the soul and source of the lower fear is the higher fear. So wherever you talk about fear at any level, it's an abnegation of self. While love at any level is in some form or fashion a projection of self. What is the con of fear? So I'm going to talk about this in greater detail in a moment. However, for right now, I want to suffice with what a mashpia, a Hasidic mentor, told me. I was talking to him about his job with the children, and he said to me as follows. Today, one has to be very careful when talking to young students about self-abnegation and humility. Why? Wouldn't you say that the problem with today is narcissism? Wouldn't we say that the generation, whatever you want to call it, X, Y, Z, whichever one, isn't it all about the me, me generation? Isn't that the problem? Why shouldn't we talk about a little bit of humility? And I share with you that psychologists and therapists have written in their books and are constantly counseling people on the difference between humility and humiliation and the difference between self-worth and ego. One who lives in a place of low self-esteem is not capable of hearing the difference between humility and humiliation self-worth and ego and when they want to beat down their narcissism they don't just beat down their narcissism they beat down their very pride their very self-pride self-respect and when they want to beat to beat down their ego they're actually beating down their self-identity self-worth thus kind of be very careful there's a huge con when we use strictness let's jump right into it and let's talk about it we are taught that when Mashiach comes, we will then fully embrace the power of Isaac. Remember, Abraham is love and kindness. Isaac is strictness and awe and fear. Now, what happens when Mashiach comes, then we'll totally embrace the unbelievable supremacy and power there is to the Isaac over Abraham, the strictness, perfection over gentleness and looking away. Let's, before we get into this, let me share with you how it says it in the Talmud. The Talmud focuses on a verse in Isaiah where we say to God, For you are our father, for Abraham did not know us, neither did Israel recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer of old is your name. Now, before I get into the Talmud, I want to just give you a little bit of a background here quickly. From the words, you are our father, for Abraham did not know us, neither did Israel. So we negated Abraham, we negated Isaac, and we negated Israel, which is Jacob. Who's left? Isaac. Thus, when we say, you are our father, the Talmud is going to say we're talking to Isaac. 
The second time when we say, you are our father, as you will see, we're talking about God. Let me read to you these two paragraphs from the Talmud. Very interesting. It's an interesting story. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmeni, Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Nahameni, said in the name of Rabbi Yonatan, what is the meaning of that which is written, for you are our father, for Abraham knows us not, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, Lord, are our father, our redeemer, everlasting is your name. We just quoted that verse. Now let's see what the Talmud says. In the future there will surely, that will surely come, the Holy One, blessed be he, will say to Abraham, your children have sinned against me. Abraham will say before him, Master of the universe. If so, let them be eradicated to sanctify your name. God goes and says, I will say it to Jacob, since he experienced the pain of raising children, he won't just walk away on them. Perhaps he will ask for mercy on their behalf. So God said to Jacob, all from the Talmud, your children have sinned. Jacob said before him, Master of the universe, if so, let them be eradicated to sanctify your name. Whoa. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, there is no reason in elders and no wisdom in youth. Elders Abraham, youth Jacob. Neither Abraham nor Jacob knew how to respond properly. So God said to Isaac, your children have sinned against me. Isaac said before him, God, Master of the universe, are they my children and not your children? At Sinai, when they accorded precedence to we will do, na'aseh, over we will listen, nishma, before you, didn't you call them my son, my firstborn son Israel, b'ni b'chori Yisrael? Now that they have sinned and they are my, they, they, are they my children and not your children? Beautiful answer, but Isaac's not finished. Watch what he does next. And furthermore, how much did they actually sin? How long is a person's life? 70 years. Subtract the first 20 years of his life because one is not punished for sins committed then. As in heavenly matters, a person is only punished from the age of 20 up. Gone with 20 years. We're left with 50. 50 years remain for them. Subtract 25 years of nights and 25 years remain of them. Subtract 12 and a half years during which one prays and eats and uses the bathroom. No sins. And 12 and a half years remain for them. If you can endure them all, the 12 and a half years, and forgive the sins committed during these years, excellent. And if not, half of the sins are upon me to bear and half upon you. And he's not finished, Isaac. He's still talking to God. And if you say that all of them, the sins of all 12 and a half years that remain are upon me, I sacrifice my soul before you, remember, on the altar with Abraham. And you should forgive them due to my merit. End the story. Now the Talmud continues. The Jewish people began to say to Isaac, You are our father. Only Isaac defended the Jewish people as a father would and displayed compassion towards his children. Isaac said to them, Whoa, before you praise me, praise the Holy One, blessed be he. And Isaac points to the Holy One, blessed be he, before their eyes. Before their eyes. Immediately they lifted their eyes to the heaven and say, and this is the closing of the verse, you, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, everlasting is your name. That is the way the Talmud tells the story that only Isaac sticks up for us. Introduce Kabbalah and Hasidus. What is the mystical story here? According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, what this means is that today, to separate love and kindness from strictness and fear is to perverse both love and fear. Which is why Korach, remember the cousin who fought with Moses, the Levite, who wanted to move away from the Kohen, was punished in his fight against Moses, as we mentioned in introductions. The reason for this is, and let's talk about what's the con of love without fear, kindness without strictness, and what's the con of fear, strictness without kindness. You see, what happens is that love, kindness, is all about giving. And because kindness is not focused on the recipient, only on his desire to give, thus kindness gives to those who are deserving and humble and to those who are arrogant, abusive, and undeserving. He gives all equally. Thus what will happen from love, kindness, when it's separated from strictness and awe and fear, is it will have a bad outcome. Thus, we need to have strictness 
guide love. Yes, you want to give everyone, but you can't give everyone. And you definitely can't give everyone equally because of what they will do with it. But however, the worst problem is if you have strictness without love, without kindness. Why? To understand this, we're going to just explain. Evil, darkness, cannot digest infinite light. It's beyond them. Because they're not transparent, because they're egocentric, because they're thick and coarse and opaque, by definition, they cannot digest infinite light. Kindness is, gives infinite light. Strictness says, whoa, 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 let's contract, let's conceal, let's give everyone exactly what they could handle and not a drop more. Ultimately speaking, the only reason why darkness and evil can nurture off the infinite light, off divinity, is because of the contraction and the concealment of the darkness. Thus, the perfect breeding ground for the other side is contracted wheat light, weak light. Thus, our sages say that this world is primarily ruled by evil because of the darkness. So the amount of light, the divinity that comes in here, can be nursed and nurtured and digested and internalized by the evil, and they use it for the wrong aspect. Let, let's get here, this was mystical. Let's get here practical, psychological, and statistical. Let's talk facts on the ground. While an overindulged child who was always spoiled produces quite an incomplete, ugly adult, nevertheless, and you can do your homework, I did my homework before I'm saying this, most psychotic, psychopath, serial killers are the products of horrific upbringing of darkness, coldness, and unloved childhood of infinite, unbearable strictness. Thus, we see clearly that in a world where evil and darkness exists, strictness without kindness is more devastating than kindness without strictness. Thus, to have separated the strictness from the darkness, from the, from the kindness, would create very undesirable results. We see it. We see it statistically. But when Mashiach comes, only then when darkness and evil is removed from the universe, then we will tell Isaac, Ata Avinu. Then we don't have to worry about where it's going to come. We have to worry about insecurities, no self-worth. Then everyone will know that he is unconditionally loved by God, valued by God. And thus strictness won't cause a psychotic break. That's when we'll have the, the desired outcomes of refinement, elevation, and transformation only for the good. Thus we understand now, wrapping it all up before we get practical again. Thus we understand now. Why the verse says, Isaac, the son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac. Because in today's day and age, kindness without strictness is not good. Strictness without kindness is a horror. Thus the verse says, they both have to balance each other out qualitatively. Now we'll talk about what that means. In closing, let us return to the modern day issue of how we need to treat ourselves and maybe even reparent ourselves. To answer the, the answer to this, we already explained, is to have a balance, not quantitative balance, but qualitative balance, where every time there's a qualitative balance between the kindness and the strictness. So what exactly do we do, and how do we do this for ourselves? Qualitative balance is what the opening verse of our Torah portion is all about. Isaac, the son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac. Let's talk about this. The only and entire reason for gentleness to self is that it be positive and productive. Thus, the soul, the qualitative sense of gentleness is not to baby ourselves or to allow ourselves to devolve into indulgence. It takes a coating of strictness 
driven by a purpose and a mission in life to guide that our gentleness to self be only of the positive variety of gentleness. Let's talk on the other side. So too, the one and only reason for strictness is only that the warmth and love of gentleness truly permeate our beingness. I want to stop here and focus for a moment. I didn't say that the sole purpose of strictness is to perfect ourselves, to become successful, to become achieved, to become a useful participant in the human race. That's not what I said. I want you to hear carefully what I'm saying. So I'm going to read it again. So the one and only reason for strictness is only that the warmth and love of gentleness truly permeate our beingness. Gentleness will not permeate our beingness if we don't have strictness, mission, purpose. Thus the very soul and quality of our strictness is gentleness. If our strictness is not driving us towards feeling the self-love and self-worth of our gentleness, then we must stop immediately with the strictness for it is destroying us and not building us. I want to share with you something I just heard off script. I just heard self-worth is not something you're born with. Self-worth is something that you achieve through your accomplishments. You see that you face fear successfully. You see that you accomplish goals, and that gives you a sense of self-worth. I'm not getting into the difference between being this and doing this right now. I just want to say in general, you'll see children that have accomplishments. They have self-worth. To experience self-gentleness, you need to have, we need to have, I need to have self-worth. Thus, we now understand that the sole purpose of strictness to give us guidance to accomplishments on all levels, it's all about being able to digest true gentleness and self-love. The only strictness that one should be treating himself with is the son of Abraham, love, gentleness, and kindness. The son of Abraham and the one that is begot by Abraham, love, gentleness, and kindness. Any other strictness is ungodly and not a Torah experience. Thank you.